Well, I want to start on a lighter note, and you may be familiar with these kinds of stories, but imagine three lifelong friends die tragically in a car accident, and so they come before St. Peter at the pearly gates of heaven, and the first friend steps up to St. Peter, and St. Peter says, welcome, here is your reward, and immediately handcuffs this first friend to an extremely unattractive woman. And he goes off with his reward into heaven. The second friend steps up. And essentially the same thing happens. St. Peter says, welcome. Here is your reward. He handcuffs him to an extremely unattractive woman. And off he goes. But they stick around trying to see what happens with their third friend. The third friend steps up. And again, St. Peter says, welcome. Here is your reward. And he handcuffs an extremely attractive woman to the third friend. The two friends, having seen what just had happened, said, St. Peter, outraged, of course, why is it that our friend gets this really attractive woman? And St. Peter says to them, well, the both of you both killed a bird with a stone when you were five, and so therefore this is your reward. And they said, well, we know that our, our friend here has done far worse things than this. Surely he should uh, be have a similar reward. And St. Peter says, well, this beautiful woman here also killed a bird with a stone when she was five. Whether you found that funny or not, maybe what is even funnier is that I found this joke on (laughs) DesperatePreachers.com. If you found this offensive, Perhaps what should be even more offensive that these are very common jokes, maybe not so popular now, but were very common for a long time. And what is even more offensive about these jokes is that it's a complete misrepresentation of the gospel. These kinds of jokes teach, intentionally or not, that the system of religion of following Christ is we have to do good, we appear before the judge, who apparently is St. Peter, And we have to prove that we can enter uh, heaven based on the good that we have done. And perhaps if we were bad enough, then we would not be able to enter. It's obviously not the gospel, or maybe you don't know that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. In today's passage, we're going to see again and again that the access we have to God is something that is quite beautiful. And we're going to hear this truth said again and again that by God's grace, you have access to the king. By God's grace, you have access to the king. If you'd like to take notes, I want you to write down these these three points that we're going to go through that reveal, again, this truth of by God's grace, you have access to the king. We're going to look at a mystery revealed in Jesus. Uh, Secondly, we'll see a grace given in Jesus. And lastly, a boldness in Jesus. So we didn't read through all the verses. Anna read through verses 7 through 12, but this section in Ephesians um, is really uh, verse 1 through 12. And this was, I just picked this passage out of the lectionary for Epiphany Sunday. And uh, I think it's a really great way to start our new year, remembering the access we have to God. So let's consider first this mystery of God that is described in this passage. It really is the theme word. Of this, section, of, this section, this, um, of this section, verses 1 through 12. Now, it's important because when we hear the word mystery, we think a certain thing, but the mystery, when Paul uses in this sense, is not something that is unknown or unknowable. 
when Paul uses the word mystery here, he's talking about a significant truth that is to be revealed. A significant truth that is to be revealed. So in the context of this text, he is saying, at one time, the mystery of God was not clearly known. But when Christ came, his plan of redemption, his plan of salvation was made clearly known. This significant truth was revealed for all to know. That God was planning to redeem all of humanity. And that even, maybe more shockingly uh, to us, that this plan of, plan of uh, redemption was something that would be a spectacle for the angels to watch. That it was a cosmic spectacle. That the importance of what was being done was something that all angels watched. And that the, the manifold mysteries of God and wisdom would be revealed. But for us now, living almost 2,000 years after Christ was, was born, we know that through Scripture, we have very plainly revealed to us this mystery, this mystery that is really not so much a mystery anymore. The gospel is clearly laid before us in Scripture. And even if we think of this, um, this mystery is, is not so much now, what is the mystery, but more for the church who will go share this mystery to the world? As of October 2019, the Bible has been translated in its entirety into 698 languages. And the New Testament alone has been translated into 1,548 languages. Now, that might sound like a lot of languages to you, but there are actually over 6,000 languages in this world. So there's still a lot of work to be done for the gospel message to be translated into native tongue of all people so that they might know the gospel message clearly in their own language. And yet, for us nonetheless, English speakers, we have had the gospel shown to us, revealed to us, unveiled to us for thousand, how many thousand years? Thousands of years, a couple of thousand years. But in English language, I don't know what the date was that was first translated into English. Maybe some historian would know that. But we've had it for a long time. So this mystery of Christ is being made more and more understandable to all people, even now. And there's still lots of work for Christians to do. But we have known this gospel for many, many, many years. And even as us as individuals, we have seen it, read it, grown up with it quite plainly. And Paul gets even more specific about this mystery in verse 6. He says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I'm not sure everyone's ethnicity, but the most, of us, most of us here are Gentiles. We, Gentiles, have been clearly and blatantly invited to the party into being restored into relationship with God, included in the number of the people of God, considered Israel through Christ Jesus. And the plan of God's redemption was always meant to include Gentiles, to include non-Jews. Israel, the nation, was always meant to be a light to the nations around them and to point them to the one true living God. Again, this not-so-mysterious mystery is that we are all invited to be restored into relationship with God, to gain access to the almighty living God as sons and daughters and heirs of God. And this is a promise that we have forever and ever 
with God through faith in Jesus. And so we see that Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, all point to this mystery that has been revealed already. And this mystery tells you, Gentile, and if there's Jews here as well, then you, Jew as well, that by grace you have access to the king. This is the mystery that has been revealed. But secondly, we see that there's a grace given in Jesus. The second key word in this section, in this passage, is grace. This mystery revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ is through grace alone, through the grace of God in Jesus. Everything is grace for us as Christians. Verse 2, Paul says that he has been given, quote unquote, a stewardship of God's grace. And there's a double meaning in this. Verse 8 says, Paul considers himself the least of all saints, the least of all of God's people. And he considers it's a grace of God that he would be used by God, that he, this formerly zealous Jew who would go to the ends of murdering Christians in order to persecute them, can now be used to bring the gospel for all to hear. It is by God's grace that he was asked to be the vessel of the gospel message. And yet he knows he brings a gospel message of grace to all, that just like him, None of us can earn this restoration with God through our goodness, through our works. And that scripture teaches us that for all of us, sin, no matter how much or how little, separates us from relationship with God. We don't have to be murderers to need the grace of God. We all need the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the restoration of God. Paul himself, again, in here, calls himself quote, unquote, a minister according to the gift of God's grace. He says this in verse 7. So again, this double meaning of God's grace is all purely a gift from God for Paul himself and for all that he shares this message with and for all of us who have read this message through Scripture, through his um, epistles. It's not something we can earn by our goodness, by our intellect, by our power, by our money. And just in case we don't get it, Paul makes a point to say that, quote, unquote, it was given by the working of God's power. This gift and this task for him was given by the working of God's power. Paul is saying for himself, he didn't do anything to achieve this great responsibility or this restoration with God, that it was the working of God's power that he could be used as, a gen- as an apostle to the Gentiles. All is a gift from God, a grace given by Jesus, and this access to the king is by God's grace. Yet maybe the part that I really want to focus on is this last point, a boldness that we have in Jesus, this mystery revealed in the gospel through the grace of God leads to a boldness in Jesus as we go before the Lord. Paul says in verse 11 and 12, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Verse 12 brings great emphasis to the way in which we can approach our our God. And we have to remember the context that the Jewish people's approach to God was mediated by rituals and sacrifices, temples and holy places, concepts of clean and unclean. 
the average Jew had a very healthy reverence and fear before coming, for coming before the holy God. And yet Paul uses these three key words to describe how we all now approach, Jesus, uh, approach God through the mediation of Jesus. Boldness, access with confidence. We can approach God with boldness and access with confidence. Where does our bold access come from? Where does our confident access to the king come from? It is only through Jesus that we can have this bold and confident access to God. He is a holy God, and we have access to the king, not confident in our own holiness, in our own goodness. We have access to the king because we are confident in Christ's goodness, in Christ's righteousness. We know that we have Christ's righteousness counted as our righteousness. And in theology, we talk about this idea of double, double imputation. On the cross, our sins were counted as Christ's, and he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And yet by faith in him, Christ's righteousness is counted as ours, so that in God's eyes, we are covered with the righteousness of Christ. The blood of Christ washes us clean, and then the righteousness of Christ covers over us so that, again, no matter what, if we have faith in God, God sees us with Christ's righteousness clothed around us. We are bold not because we are good. We are bold because Christ is good. And so it is by God's grace that you have access to the king. So the question is, what will you do with it in 2020? What will you do with this bold access? I think for all of us, without a deepening grasp of the gospel, we will tend towards one of two things, either fear of accessing God or accessing God without appreciation, thinking it is nothing to come before the holy God. There's kind of three situations that I feel like I come across again and again in um, just being a pastor, dealing with people wrestling with their faith in God. One, that in our doubt, we, we don't believe that our sins truly have been dealt with, have been forgiven by God on the cross through Jesus. And so we come still with fear and trepidation before God, not with boldness, not with belief that we really have access to the king, that he delights in us. We come with fear that perhaps our sin still separates us from God in some way and should make us come at least with head hung low as we come before the king. Or perhaps in a different sense, I've seen again and again that this illegitimate, illegitimate sense of shame that we have that we're not good enough leads us to think that we cannot be loved and we cannot be accepted by God. A sense of good enough that doesn't have to do so much with our moral shortcomings as it does not understanding the dignity in which God has made us, the power of his redemptive work in us, the sense of shame of not being good enough that keeps us from grasping this bold access we have to the king. Now, our, our doubt and shame don't necessarily mean we don't approach God or don't relate to God. 
our doubt and shame can just lead to a very boring, lifeless, dutiful relationship with God. Not wanting ever to shake up the way we relate to God because being able to control the way we relate to God makes us feel a little bit more comfortable at least. But hear the promise of God that Paul preaches to us. By God's grace, you have access to the king. You can come before the king with confidence, with boldness, because you're covered by the blood of Christ. Don't let your doubts or your shame keep you from accessing God with that boldness and that confidence. There is a flip side. Sometimes in our pride or our denial of our own sin, we can think God is largely happy with us the way we are, not being willing to evaluate the ways in which we have fallen short of God's goodness. And we can make light then of coming before a holy God. But whether we make God more severe than he is or more lenient than he is, what we end up doing is we end up relating to God, not according to his revelation about himself, but according to how we think he should be or how we think he is. We project onto him who we think he is rather than submitting to him who he says he is. And who he says he is is, yes, he is holy. Yes, he is just. And at the very same time, he is far more loving than we can ever imagine. And because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have access to the king. And we can come with boldness and confidence to him as children who are delighted in and loved. So I ask you to conclude, just what will you do with this bold access that has been purchased by the blood of Christ. Don't waste your access because of your doubts. Don't fret over your access because of your shame. Don't make light of your access because of your pride. Make the most of your access to God by God's grace in this new year. Repent repent from the ways in which you have Spread it over your access to God. Repent of the ways in which you have wasted your access to God and turn back to him and his ways. And his way is to say, you have every reason to have boldness and confidence to come before the king because of Jesus Christ. You are his beloved. You are his children. I don't know if this is theologically correct. I was thinking about not saying it, but I'm going to say it. And someone can correct me theologically. Sometimes I think when we have our own children, we can make the mistake of worrying too much about their character and not remembering to like them as people. Some would say we can only speak about God as loving or hating us because Scripture doesn't talk about God liking us. And if we want to go with that hermeneutic, I guess this is going to be theologically correct. But I believe if we are the children of God, then God likes us because he is our creator. He has made each and every one unique in his sight. 
If he doesn't like his own creation, he's not a very good creator. And he has dealt with our sin. He's dealt with our moral failure. There's no more hatred for our sins because Christ has taken it. And he has shown his love for us by going to the cross for us. And he also likes us. So remember, by God's grace, you have access to the king. Let's pray.